Hey, good afternoon and welcome to Hope Midtown. My name is Drew, I'm one of the pastors here, and we are delighted that you've joined us today. Uh, if you've been with us over the last few weeks, you know that we've actually been on this sermon series called On Mission. Can I hear you say On Mission? And really what that whole theme or this whole theme of mission or purpose deals with is no matter what your religious background or persuasion might be, the reality is, and in fact, you might be someone who says, I don't even believe in God, but yet every single one of us have wrestled probably with the question, especially over the past 18 months, the question of what is my purpose in life? Anyone ever ask that question, especially when difficulty or trials come, we ask, why am I in this job? You're really asking the question, what is the purpose of my life? Is there more to life than this? Or this relationship that I'm in, is this the purpose of life? What is my meaning? Where do I find purpose? And really what we've been exploring is this idea of the mission of God. What is God doing in the world and how does he invite us to participate in it? Now, if you're a Christian, really today we're talking about a Christian perspective on what the meaning and purpose and mission of life is all about. If you're not a Christian, so glad you're here because you get to lean in on this conversation. What do Christians believe about what really matters in life? And that's what we're going to be exploring. Now, to understand that, really, at the end of the scriptures in the book of Revelation, there's this vision that's given to, to John, who's one of the followers of Jesus. And he has this vision of Jesus. At the end of time, he makes this statement that actually reveals what the purpose of God in the world is for, especially for today. And so Jesus, there's this basic statement that he makes in Revelation chapter 21. As he looks back uh, at human history, this is what he says. He who is seated on the throne, that's Jesus, said this. Behold, I am making all things new. Can I hear you say all things new? That's right. Jesus is basically looking back and he's basically saying that my mission has been to make all things new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. In other words, Jesus is looking back and he's saying, what, why, now, why in the world is he making this statement? I'm making all things new. Well, the reality is this is what Christians believe about the world that we live in. We believe that we live in this contended space of good and evil, of the way that God created the world to be, of beauty, of truth, of justice, of mercy, of kindness. And yet we experience in the world around us, both personally as well as systemically, all the brokenness from that world that God created to be good and beautiful. We experience disappointments. We experience difficulties. We experience pain and suffering and loss and pandemics and, you know, painful kind of experiences in our relationships with sickness, with illness, and with the world around us. And really, when Jesus is making this statement, behold, I am making all things new, what he's basically saying is, I'm going to redeem all of it into something good and beautiful the way it was supposed to be. Now, this is the vision for human history that Christians believe in, that this is what Jesus is doing. And he invites us then to be part of this renewal project to be part of what does it mean for us when we go and we volunteer with City Relief. What we're basically doing is we're saying, hey, this is the way the world should be, where no one is hungry or not uh, well-clothed. Instead, we are a people who begin to give these glimpses of the goodness of God, because the mission of God is to make all things new. Now, here's the thing. Some of you might be listening right now, and you're basically like, oh, this whole sermon series. He, basically, this preacher is going to ask us to do more things. Well, like Sarah mentioned last week, we're really not inviting you to do more than what, you've already, what you're already doing, but what you're called to, but to do it in a manner in which your perspective has changed related to what it means to follow Jesus. What does it look like for my everyday life journey 
for a, a fundamental perspective change to happen that would actually begin to influence the way that I behave. Now, here's the thing. I remember uh, for 10 years, I've, I was uh, married at our 10-year anniversary. My wife and I, Tina and I, we were celebrating 10 years, and we went to this marriage retreat. Now, what was interesting about this marriage retreat, now keep in mind, and I've shared about my family of origin history before, uh, my parents grew up in war-torn Korea, and they immigrated to this country to flee for a better life. Now, I've explained that my father was someone who was incredibly violent, both towards my mom as well as to us. And so the household that we grew up in was one that was constantly like at odds, a lot of yelling and shouting and fighting. And so you can imagine then, for my little mind growing up with my brothers, my three brothers, as well as my mom, like I grew up, whether implicitly or explicitly, with this vision for marriage and family. And it was basically, this is what happens in family. Family is basically full of fighting and anger and fear. And my father and his relationship with my mom, the image of what I had for a relationship was basically like, wow, I don't know if they really like each other, but they're just arguing all the time and my father is going off the handle. So if you can imagine, for my little mind, I've been formed in such a manner in which this vision for marriage and family is in me. Now, here's the thing. I remember talking to my mom one, one, at one point in one of these really kind of explosive moments in my teenage years. I asked her, I said, why are you still with dad? And uh, she basically says to me, she says, oh, the reason why I'm still with dad is because of you guys. It's because for you and for your well-being, I've been committed to keeping this family together. So now, explicitly and implicitly, here are the message that I had received about marriage and family. It was basically like, for the kids, we sacrifice anything, and we will endure anything, hell or high water, in our marriage, because the key to it is just sticking with it and being faithful through everything. So here's the message that I received then about marriage. The message I received was basically, marriage is about just sticking with it. No matter how awful and painful it is, it's about faithfulness. And in fact, that was my vision. And even as a Christian, that was my vision. Like, okay, marriage is just going to be something that I endure. It's going to be painful, but we're going to endure this no matter what. Now, you can understand why I would have this perspective on marriage. So here we are. We're at this, like, 10-year anniversary. We go on this marriage retreat, and we're sitting here. And the speaker basically stands up in front of people, and he basically says this. He says, him and his wife, they, they say, you know, most Christians have this belief that the vision for marriage is supposed to be, you're supposed to be faithful through anything, and the key word there is faithfulness. You basically endure it. And I remember just sitting there and being like, yep, amen, that's exactly, that's exactly. But meanwhile, here's, here's the thing. If you were to ask me at that moment, do I have a great marriage? I'd be like, of course. Like, we don't yell a lot, you know, <laughs> like, we, like, we're peaceable. We spend copious amounts of time with each other and with our children. Like, I'm nowhere near how, how, like how my dad was. And so my measurement then of what a great marriage or a great family life looked like was basically over and against my father and the family that I grew up in. So, so here I am in this marriage. I'm like, man, I'm, I got this. Like, we should be teaching this conference, you know, 10 years in. And then I remember the, the, the couple, they... They stand in front and they said, what if we told you, though, that God's vision for marriage wasn't just something for you to endure, but for something for you to be passionate about and joyful about? And I remember just kind of sitting there being like, 
what do you mean? And then they said, do you remember when you first started dating your spouse? Or do you remember when you first got married? Or do you remember those early days, those butterflies in the stomach, those moments when you just could not, uh, like, you could not wait to see the person? And, uh, you know, and I was like, yeah, yeah. And then they said, what if you worked on your marriage in such a way where the vision for marriage wasn't just let's just endure this, but what if it was let's have the best possible marriage that's absolutely passionate? That's so passionate, in fact, that it mimics those early days that you were in. What if that was the image? And then they start to open up the scriptures from the Song of Solomon and from the book of Ephesians that talks about the mystery of marriage and God's magnanimous love for us. And I remember just being captivated. And here I was sitting in this marriage tree, and I was like, oh, my goodness. Like, here I was settling for this vision of what marriage was. And sure, it was better than what I had experienced growing up, And yet, there was this whole world that was open to me, and all it took was just this perspective shift of like, whoa, marriage could be that? It could really be something that I looked forward to, that that was not simply something that we were just being faithful in, that we were just basically trudging along, but that something that we could actually be passionate about and joyful and buoyant in, this is absolutely incredible. Now, does, does this mean that something fundamentally shifted in our marriage? I would like to think that, like, again, the optics of everything, I don't think much changed. However, our perspective changed of what if we could have the best possible marriage now and forever? What if now we were intentional about having our marriage not just be faithful, but being passionate, like passionately in love, passionate in the ways in which we were communicating and, and growing in our relationship together. Now, that perspective shift really changed a whole lot in our marriage and in our family. And really what I'm about to present to you today is, is simply a perspective shift. I'm not asking you to put more time into whatever you're already putting time into. I simply want to invite us into this perspective shift because what if what if God, the vision that God has for you and the vision that God has for me as it relates to our, the way that we move about in the world is one that we've simply been settling for like the dregs of something beautiful that God has for us. And really, this is the invitation of life with God. And so today, here's the framework that we're gonna use as we unpack this idea of mission or purpose and the people of God. It's really this framework of being, what does it mean to be, our core identity, to do, which is our core mission, and then to go, which is our core position. Now, this framework of be, do, go comes from the book More by Todd Wilson, where he talks about this idea of purpose and meaning, especially um, as followers of Jesus. Now, here's where we'll start. We'll start with being our core identity. What does it mean to be in our core identity? Now, again, I'm inviting you to a perspective shift of perhaps the ways in which we believed Christians should be, or, uh, and if you're not a Christian, maybe you had this belief that Christians are this certain way. Well, here's really from Jesus's mouth when he talks about our core identity in Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 to 40. This is what he says. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the lock, again, he's talking to these religious leaders, tested him with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, look at how Jesus replies. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now notice the word that's underlined here is the word love. Can I hear you say love? That's right, it's love. You know, recent polls were taken about what many non-Christians believe about Christians or how they view Christians. And the top two words that were used were basically like judgmental, partisan, political, things like that. Now, isn't that interesting? When it comes down to it, here Jesus is when he's talking about the fundamental identity of what it means to be someone who believes in God and follows his ways. It's to be characterized by love. By love. Loving God and loving others as you would love yourself. The core identity for a Christian is actually to be some of the greatest lovers on the planet. That's tweetable. The greatest lovers on the planet. Isn't that interesting and isn't that extraordinary? That the life that Jesus actually invites us to, that the core identity is to be someone who is madly in love. Now, as we go from core identity, let's go to core mission, doing. So being is to be someone of love, and doing, we're going to talk about two different aspects of what does it mean to do in terms of our core mission. Check this out. In the book of Genesis, when God is creating the cosmos and everything in it, there comes this moment where he's now creating men and women. And look at what it says in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. It says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So here's basically what, what God is doing. God's created The material world, he's created to be very good. And that's why we as Christians, we value the environment. We value the material world. But the crown of his creation is basically men and women. Why? Because somehow, deeply imbued in human beings, in men and women, is the image of God. That somehow we've got this divine fingerprint to us. So while we value trees and the created world, we value also Maybe, and especially much higher, is the the men and women that are created in God's image. So do you see how all of this is valued, but there's something very distinct about human beings? Now, look at what happens. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. And it says, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now, this... Uh, idea of ruling and subduing and filling the earth, there's actually this translation uh, that some scholars have used for this word. Instead of creating and ruling and subduing, it's the word create and shape. Can I hear you say create and shape? The idea of creating and shaping is taking the raw goods of something and begin to make something out of these raw material goods. So in other words, from the very beginning, the mission that God had given to people, to men and women, was to take, as they were created in a garden, to actually take all the raw goods that they had been given, and then to begin to create and shape the world around them. In other words, they were to take an apple, and somehow from this apple, create an apple cider donut. You know what I'm talking about? Hello, somebody. Right? Like, this is what the call of God was that each one of us were created with this impulse towards creativity and work. 
And today, even whatever industry you might find yourself in, what we're called to do is create and shape in the world around us. Now, some of us, that's in the, work, the creative field. Some of us, that's in finance and generating wealth for the economy. That's in all these different ways we are to create and, wealth, to create and shape the world around us so that we can create in such a manner that it would be conformed to the image of God. Now, here's the beautiful thing. In the book of Genesis, there's a garden. In the book of Revelation, at the end, when Jesus basically says, behold, I'm making all things new, you know what's so amazing? Is he saying that as he speaks over the new heavens and the new earth. And the new heavens and the new earth, it's basically not just a garden anymore. From Genesis to the book of Revelation, it's gone from being a garden to being a garden city. In other words, somehow a city has been born out of this mandate to create and shape in the world around us. So here's an an image of a wild garden. Actually, I don't know how wild it is. I just Googled wild garden. So there it is, wild garden. There it is for you. Now, here's the image of Genesis 1. It's this wild garden that Adam and Eve have been given to now go ahead and create and shape. And yet, look at what happens in the book of Revelation. There's an image of this. Yes, that heaven is a garden city. Now, some of you are looking at this image and you're like, there's no way that New York City is heaven. (laughs) But come on now, we live in this city. But I mean, this is the beautiful thing about the city that we live in. We live in this city that has a park right in the middle of it. Uh, And it's, it's like the best of both worlds. And really in the book of Revelation, there's what people have done. They've been given this task to take the raw goods and then to create and shape in the world and to create something beautiful where now there's this mixture of both garden and city. You see, the first core mission of ours is to be people then who take the raw gifts that we've been given and the raw goods that we've been given and to begin to create and shape. That's why your work matters. That's why what you do during the week matters. And the way that you approach that, if you approach it in such a manner as if you're creating and shaping according to the ways that God wants us to create and shape, it makes all the difference in the world. You see, but this is just one part of the core mission. There's another part of this core mission. And this part of the core mission, actually, Jesus gives to us as he leaves, after he resurrects from the grave, he gives us the Great Commission. And in the the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, look at what it says. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Can I hear you say, go and make disciples? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So on one hand, yes, we're supposed to create and shape in the work that we've been given, whether it's a nonprofit work or for-profit, whatever it might be, to do it in a manner that would be holy and pleasing to the Lord. And on the other hand, there's also this part of our mission by which we're called to make disciples. Now, what does this mean to make disciples? It means to invite people into following this Jesus person. Remember, we talked about the brokenness of the world that we live in. And again, whether you're Christian or you're not, we can all agree there are parts of the world that are incredibly broken. The racism, the sexism, um, the awful things that happen in our world. And that each one of us together, when we begin to, to live out his ways and the ways in which he's called us to be, again, a lover of God and a lover of people. When we begin to invite other people into that journey, when we begin to disciple others 
into that journey. What we're basically doing is we're saying the way of Jesus in the world that we live in is a way of beauty, kindness, truth, loving of one's enemy, and forgiveness. Now, all of those different kind of elements of what it means to follow Jesus, we are to to disciple others into that process. Now, here's the thing. Some of you might be like, I can't believe you're saying this. I can't believe you're saying that we need to be trying to influence other people in this manner. Well, here's the thing. There's all sorts of things in the world right now that are influencing you and me. There's the media. There's the trauma that I grew up with. There's our family of origin. There's the cultures that we're embedded in. There's social media that tells us to value certain things. And you and I could probably come up with a list right now of all of those different values that the world around us tells us to value. Valuing money, sex, power, whatever it might look like. And here when Jesus and the teachings of Jesus, and one of the reasons why week after week we come and we study the scriptures and we talk about the scriptures is because the invitation of following Jesus is to come and see that that what he offers to us is really good, compelling news. Now, what if the rest of the world knew that it was good news that we were being invited into? And really what we're called to do then is to make disciples, not only to create and shape in the world around us, that the manner by which we're creating and shaping is one that honors God, but also that we are to be a people who influence the people around us in making disciples and helping them to follow the ways of Jesus, believing that the way of Jesus is one that is beneficial and good for the world around us. So that's part of our core mission. Number three, if we were to go look back at this chart then, here's a chart that I created. Here's B, if our, if our core identity is to love God and to love others, our core mission is to create and shape and to make disciples. How about this idea of going? Where in the world are we supposed to do this? Now, here's the thing. Most of us, when we think about where are we supposed to do this, we think of like there's tiers of Christians, right? Like, Like there's one tier like that's way up here, like the super holy, like these people are like, you can't touch them really. They're like on this level, um, folks like Sarah Bournes, right? Like like amazing, I'm just kidding, Sarah. We love Sarah, of course, just, and she's just like every one of us, right? Like there's, but this is what we we do. We put this pedestal of people that are, oh yeah, 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 that following Jesus stuff, that's for like the super duper, you know, uh, anointed people up there. And then the rest of us, the rest of us, we just like to, I don't know, play video games and watch football in the afternoons or something. You know, like, I mean, that's kind of how we think. We think that there's this dichotomy. And yet the invitation of God is for anyone who follows Jesus to be people who be, who do, and who go. Now, what does this mean to go? Does it mean that I need to accept this call to move to the slums of Calcutta and to be just like Mother Teresa, right? I mean, some of us, we think, oh yeah, those people are the really special people who God sends. Well, not really. Check out what Paul writes uh, to the church in Rome. And this was the scripture that was read earlier. It says, so here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, Let me hear you say, everyday, ordinary life. You're sleeping, you're eating, you're going to work and walking around life and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. 
You'll be changed from the inside out. Really readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to the level of immaturity. God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. I love this. He's basically saying, hey, listen, it, really, this isn't some gigantic leap of what you're supposed to do. Here's what I want to invite you to do. I want you to, I want to invite you to your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, your eating, your waking up kind of life. The places today where you live, work, and play. Your, the normal rhythms of your own journey right now. And it's in those rhythms, here's what I want you to do. I want you to now center your life and your attention and your affections on God. To be attentive to the ways in which God wants you to live and move in your workplace, in your schools, and, and, uh, and in your neighborhoods. If you can begin to do that, that's what the call is. The call is not, oh, yes, you know, like God's going to ask you to move somewhere where you don't want to go. Again, some of us, we think, oh, no, I could only be a super duper Christian if I move to somewhere I don't want to go. But no, it's take your everyday life. And what if in your everyday life where you live, work, and play, you committed to being a person who is a lover of God and a lover of people. You committed to being a person who is create and shaping in a God-honoring way and a person who is also committed to making disciples, introducing the way of Jesus to those who you've been charged with. Again, the people where you live, work, and play. This is the invitation for all of us. We're not trying to add more to your life. Instead, we're, we're inviting you to have this perspective change. Wherever you are today, your coworkers, your classmates, your neighbors, what if fundamentally our perspective began to change? So what does it look like to be, to do, and to go? Being is to love God and to love others. Doing is to make disciples and to create and shape. And going is where you live, work, and play today as well as where you live, work, and play tomorrow. That the way we begin to approach our lives then become wherever right now God has placed us, the relationships, the industries, that together today, as well as tomorrow, we're simply called to be the kind of people who stand for for the way of Jesus, for the ways in which he's invited us to a way of love, kindness, of forgiveness, of justice, of truth? What if that was the invitation for all of us? I'm not asking you to move. Like, you might be like, oh no, God's going to call me to move to Staten Island. or something. No, I'm not calling you to do that. Just right where you are, wherever you live, wherever you work, wherever you play, right where you are. How, how could the mentality begin to shift How could the environment that you're now invited into, maybe you've heard that the culture of your company is so cutthroat and so mean-spirited. What if you could be someone who, instead of being absorbed into that culture, you become someone who's now beginning to actually change that culture with your kindness, with your joy, with your love. Now, I know that's a, a humongous task for many of us, but the invitation for us is not, hey, go out there to really accomplish what God wants you to. But instead, what if today, right where you are, where you live, work, and play, God had an extraordinary calling for you. That's the invitation. 
Now, here's the thing. You might look at this list and be like, that's still a lot. (laughs) I mean, you're basically calling me to reorient my life, to fundamentally change things. But I don't know if I buy that so much because it feels like another heavy yoke, like another to-do. Well, really, when it comes down to it, because at the end of the day, this can be a yoke for any of us. It can be like, oh my goodness, I can't believe you're calling us to this. Now you've just made me feel extraordinarily guilty about all the things that I'm not doing. Well, here's the thing. This is where we go back to that core identity, right? Because the core identity, again, is to be a lover of God and a lover of people. You know, but what's so extraordinary about the Christian faith is that time and time again, whenever we talk about this relationship with God, so many of the ancient religions, as well as modern ones, are about how religion is supposed to be about how we pursue God and how we are making things right with God, how we need to pay penance, how we need to do all of these things to be in a right relationship with God. And yet, the Christian message has always been fundamentally different. It's been a story of not how we pursued God, but instead how God has pursued us. And so there's this passage that comes from 1 John where John basically says, we love because he first loved us. See, the Christian message is fundamentally different because it talks about a God whose love for us is not contingent or conditional, but instead, it's always been a pursuing type of love. This is what I talked about a couple weeks ago, that God first loved us. God is the one who has made the move. And so anything that comes after that moment comes from whether we've responded to his love or we haven't. And the question for you and for me is, today, do you know that love? Have you received that love? Have you been captured and romanced by that love? One of the questions that I love to ask couples uh, is, um, you know, I'll say, how, how did you guys meet? And I love this story of how people met. And one of the questions I'll always ask after that is, who liked who first? And I love asking that question because uh, it just shows a little bit more of the dynamic of the relationship. And I love that sheepish, like, oh, yeah, he, he liked me first. And he's like, whatever, you like me for you, too, you, you know. And uh, so I like creating that conflict. Um, I'm just kidding, I don't. <laughs> but, but I love that story. And the, the reason why I love that, the story of who liked who first, because I love those origin stories of like, who, yeah, who was the one who became vulnerable first? Who was the one... Who is the pursuer? Who is the, you know, and uh, in this relationship? And, you know, the extraordinary thing about the God that we believe in as Christians is that God has always been first. He's always been the one who's been pursuing and wooing and inviting and loving, and dying, and living for you, for me. You see, and part of this core identity piece of being lovers of God and lovers of others, it's not some guilt trip thing that God invites us to Instead, it's a story of of a God 
who has so loved you and me that he invites us into a fuller, deeper, more extraordinary kind of life, a life that's just enveloped and washed in a love that becomes the very fuel that changes our entire lives. Uh, you know, I mentioned, you know, that moment when Tina and I, when we first met, we first started dating, and there's that moment when you're in love where, like, like nothing seems to matter, you know? It's like, hey, we're in the middle of a global pandemic. It's like, I know, isn't it great? I'm so in love right now. You know, like, there's, isn't that crazy how when you're in love, when you've experienced that, you, like, it's almost like nothing else matters? What if, what if the perspective change for us today is to begin to, to realize that our lives today could fundamentally change before God? What if the ways in which we approach our work, our relationships, our homes, what if we were to become a people who our perspective changes from simply just kind of surviving it to, to now being a people who begin to thrive in it, to be a people who are responding to the overwhelming, matchless love of God? be so caught up in it that it begins to shape our identity, shape our perspective on whatever happens in the world around us. And that we become a people who are so overflowing, brimming with love. That it changes everything. It changes where we live, work, and play. It changes our marriages, our friendships, our children, our parents, our neighborhoods our city, our world.